It seems to happen every few years. I get a little notice in the mail, and I have been summoned to jury duty. I'm sure you all have experienced this if you are old enough. Uh, what's interesting, however, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. I've been summoned several times, but I've never actually been seated in a trial. So I guess depending on your perspective, that's either a good thing or a or, or bad thing. It seems as soon as they find out that I'm a pastor, they lose all interest <laughs> having me as, as a potential juror. So I'm quickly dismissed. And I always thought to myself, you know, I think it would be really interesting to be seated as a juror and, and watch what happens in a courtroom and, and see how the trial progresses. Because I find that whole process, the legal proceedings, really interesting. Uh, and since I've never been an actual part of an actual trial, I get my kick through watching legal dramas on TV. <laughs> uh, maybe some of you are fans of legal dramas as well. And if you are, and if you have ever been uh, called to serve as a juror, I think you can instantly understand what is happening in this passage. Because what is happening here, this is a legal drama. And in this passage, gods are on trial. And it is as if you and I, we are the jurors called to make a decision. And in this passage, in this legal drama, gods of the nations have, uh, so to speak, brought a lawsuit against the God of Israel, challenging him for the right and the privileges of being known and being loved as God. And so the question here that the jurors that you and I are called to decide is, who, who deserves to be known and loved as true God? Is it the gods of the nations or is it the Lord? And that is why the first thing we see is that God summons the witnesses. He summons the witnesses. And so if you notice in verse 8, the Lord says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. Now, you might well remember that in the previous passages and chapters, Israel, the nation of Israel, was shown to be spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. Uh, they took no notice of God's works. They had eyes, but they did not perceive. They did not uh, listen to God's instructions. They had ears, but they did not heed his word. And so in the previous passages, it's the nation of Israel that is called blind and deaf. And now here God summons them. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. Why is God summoning them? Why here? Well, in order to understand the reason why, we need to look at verse 9. All the nations gather together and peoples assemble. What is happening is that the nations have challenged the Lord for the right to mankind's worship and service. And our God, however, is not threatened by the challenge. And so he says, 
Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? The former things is referring back to verse 3 in the previous passage where the Lord said, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. And there the Lord brought them to remember what he did for Israel at the time of Exodus. The Lord uh, considered in his heart and in his mind, on the one hand, a small and despised group of people, the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who were at the time slaves, despised and rejected by the Egyptians, having no status, having no right. And by the way, at that time, who did not seek or love the Lord? And on the other hand, there is the great nation of Egypt, powerful, prosperous. And yet in the mind of the Lord, it was no competition. It was no great dilemma for the Lord to sacrifice and shatter the great nation for the despised nation of slaves. Why? So deep was God's love for Israel that he did not consider Egypt too precious in order to save Israel. And indeed, we saw in the last passage how God does not even consider the whole world too precious in order to bless Israel, that he is willing to sacrifice the whole world in order to bless Israel. And in due time, when the time was right, we saw how even God was not even uh, uh, hesitant that he did not even spare his only begotten son. He did not consider his only son too precious, but sacrificed them in order to save his people. That's the former things that this passage is referring to this. And so God is issuing them a challenge. I did that for my people. I sacrificed the great nation of Egypt. I sacrificed the great uh, peoples, the whole world, and in time I will sacrifice even my own son. Can any of your idols say that? Can any of your idols say that that is how they love you? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. Bring forth your witnesses, God is saying. Let them testify that their so-called gods have ever loved their people as I have loved my people. Bring forth your witnesses. Let them testify that your idols have ever worked with power as I have worked with power to save, to bless my people. Bring your witnesses. Let's hear it. Bring your evidences. Let's see it. That's what God is saying. But of course, the answer is that they can't. No idols of the world, no so-called gods of the world can ever produce one single witness that can say, that's how the gods have loved me. That's how powerfully the gods have saved me. Because the thing about false gods, the thing about idols is that 
they demand and they demand and they demand. They take and they take and they take, but they never give. The thing about the idols is that they simply have no power to deliver on their promises. And now, it's God's turn. He summons his witnesses. Verse 8, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. And in verse 10, he says, you are my witnesses. Do you see something absurd about that? Can this be true? God is calling the blind to give testimony about what they have seen. And God is calling the deaf to give testimony about what they have heard. How can this be? How can the blind be a witness to what they have seen? How can the deaf be a witness to what they have heard? Well, it is true. They were once blind and deaf, but we saw in the last passage, didn't we, in chapter 43, verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You see, they were, yes, they were once blind and they were once deaf, but God in mercy gave them eyes that see. And God in mercy gave them ears that hear. And that is why they can be God's witnesses. And that is why God is summoning them. And their testimony is simply this. To borrow the words of the great hymn, their testimony is, I was blind, but now I see. I was deaf, but now I hear. And so God's people, God's people are witnesses that God has indeed become our Redeemer. And we are the witnesses, and our testimony is that God did not spare even His own Son to rescue us from sin, bondage, and death. You see, we are the witnesses of God's saving love and redeeming power. And so God summons his witnesses. And the second thing we see is that God forms his witnesses. God forms his witnesses. I remember once hearing this comment. I can't remember who that was. But this person remarked that, that the church of Jesus Christ is the only organization in the whole world where the membership requirement is that you do not deserve to become members. Now think about that. The Church of Jesus Christ is the only organization in this world where the membership requirement is that you recognize that you do not belong and you do not deserve to be included. That is to say, we do not enter into God's kingdom by merit the way that companies hire people who are most qualified. God did not see us and decide that we are the most qualified applicant to come into his kingdom. Rather, 
God rescued the people who were utterly disqualified, who did not deserve His welcome. And that, that answers the question as to who may serve God as His witnesses. And it is so important for you and I to realize that the requirement to become God's witness is not that you and I are excellent people and that we are the source of inspiration for people around us. That's not the requirement. Rather, the requirement for you and I to become God's witnesses is that we know ourselves as sinners saved by God's marvelous love and grace. That's the requirement. After all, do you ever wonder why is it that we, we have eyes that see and ears that hear? So many people around us, so many people that we know are still spiritually blind and deaf. They hear the words of the Bible, they hear the words of the gospel, and they do not comprehend, they do not understand, they do not believe. They cannot, and they will not. So how is it, and why is it, that when there are so many people that are lost, who are blind and deaf spiritually, that you and I have come to see and have come to hear? Is that in any way owing to our excellence over the unbelievers? And the answer is, by no means. It is not because we are better or more excellent than the unbelievers. It is all about God's purpose of election. So verse 10, the Lord says, You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So there are three verbs in that verse that show us God's purpose for election. And the three verbs are that you may know, one, know, two, that you may believe me, and that three, understand, to know, to believe, and understand. And that's why God chose us. To know what? To believe what? To understand what? That we might know, that we might believe and understand that God saves sinners, that God redeems their lost lives and gives them a new purpose. That's why God chose us, not because we were better, not because we were excellent, but that we might know, that we might believe and understand that God, He saves sinners that he redeems our lost lives and gives us a new purpose. And so our testimony is not the great things that we have done, but the great things that God has done. And I think this is what we, we need to think about the fact that Christians, some Christians struggle and I think most Christians struggle with their sinfulness to a varying degree. 
you know, some, there might be some circumstances or some situation that show us that we are far worse sinners than we have ever imagined. And it shocks us. And it sinks our heart. And we, we despair. And we despair especially think to, to think that now coming to see what, what, what great sinners we are, we realize or we are afraid that we can never again serve God in a meaningful way. That's the source of despair. We feel ourselves too defiled, too dirty, too disqualified to serve God in any useful and meaningful sense. But doesn't that tell us something interesting? It's almost as if we think that God finds us useful because of the gifts and the good works we bring to him. It's almost as if we think that God can use us because of our good record, because of our good reputation. And that is not the case. Because what makes us useful to God is precisely that we know and we believe and we understand His grace. That's what makes us useful to God. And so if we understand this rightly, we realize that our spiritual failures and our soul-wrenching discovery of our sinfulness can actually be the starting point of a valuable and meaningful service to God because it is then we realize that we unknow, we believe, and we understand that God saves sinners. He redeems lost people. He gives them a new life. And that we are useful to God not because of the good things that we bring Him, but because we know Him now as the God of grace, as the Redeemer. And so let me encourage you, loved ones, if, if the awareness of your sinfulness has sunk you into despair, if you ever wonder if you can ever be useful to God, I say to you, all that is required of you is that you know and believe and understand that God saves sinners, that he redeems lost people and wasted lives. And just at your lowest point, you can have a new beginning of a meaningful and wonderful service to God. And thirdly and finally, we see how God equips his witnesses. God equips his witnesses. If God summons us to be his witnesses, obviously then our aim is to be competent and be faithful in our calling. And faithful servants, we, we commit ourselves to the work that our Lord gives us. And reliable witnesses 
give accurate testimonies. In other words, we are not at liberty to invent or change the message. Uh, instead, we need to learn our testimony well. So look at verse 12. The Lord says, I declared and saved and proclaimed, and you are my witnesses. Before God acts, he declares what he is about to do. And after he has done his work, he does not leave it uh, to people to figure out its meaning, but he teaches them the meaning of what he has done. He declared, he saved, and he proclaimed. And so before God rescued Israel from Egypt, he declared what he would do. And when God saved them and brought them out of Egypt, he then proclaimed to them what he has done for them. And before God brought Assyria and Babylon against Israel, God declared what he was about to do. And after he brought Assyria and Babylon against them, he told them why he did. And before God brought back the captives from Babylon, he declared to them, I will bring them back. And after he brought them back, he proclaimed to them why he did. That is the pattern of God's revelation. He declares, he declares what he's about to do, and he does it. He saves, and then he proclaims what he did. And so he declared for ages that he would send a Savior. And when he did send a Savior, when Jesus came and saved his people, then the meaning of his death and resurrection is proclaimed. So that is our testimony and that our message. We do not make up our own message. We are not at liberty to innovate, invent, or be creative in this respect. Our testimony is that God has declared that he would save, and he in fact did come and save. And now we as the saved people, we proclaim what he has done. And so do you desire to serve the Lord? And do you long to be faithful God does not require you to move heaven and earth. He does not require you to perform miracles. And he does not require you even to stand head and shoulder above the rest of mankind to inspire them. Rather, see what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. What other God has and what other God can love you in such a way? What other God can raise the dead? What other God can redeem lost lives? Only the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Only Jesus Christ, his son, and only the Holy Spirit. And that is our testimony in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Oh, Father, your works are great.
and your word so precious, and we rightly feel so unworthy and so inadequate to the task. Indeed, we pray, teach us humility, but nevertheless, keep us from thinking that it is our gifts, our good works that you require, that you need, that you desire. But that first and foremost, that we, we believe, that we know, that we believe, and we understand what you have done for us. And so we pray, help us to be witnesses of that message that you save sinners, that you give hope to people who have no hope, and that you give life where there is no life. And so may we be useful to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.